Designs for Health is proud to present Understanding Epigenetics and Methylation, an online webinar with Zelda Graham on Tuesday the 21st of May 2024 at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. She'll be covering how to understand the steps of methylation, how to identify and manage patients with under and over methylation issues, what tests are useful to qualify patient symptom presentation, and how to set effective treatment goals with these patients. For more information and to register, please visit the designsforhealth.com.au website. by Designs. I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining us today is Professor Oscar Coetze, a clinical nutritionist, both academic and clinician. And today we'll be talking about a functional approach to mental health. Welcome to Wellness by Designs, Oscar. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. How about yourself? I'm really good, thank you. But I've got to thank you especially because we're recording on a Monday in Australia, which means it's Sunday evening in the US. So thank you so much for giving up your time to join us. Um, perhaps we can start off with just a little bit of your background um, and your your interest, your keen interest in mental health, please. Yeah, so I, I was born and raised in South Africa and I finished my bachelor's degree there and, and I had two majors, actually. I specialized in criminology and psychology um, and I had a real interest in criminal psychology, you know, at that particular point. Then after um, military service, I, you know, decided to come to the United States of America and I applied for a position at Fair Oaks Hospital in Summit, New Jersey, where I started working uh, in the area of drug and alcohol counseling. Um, and in that particular arena, I was working with uh, codependency counseling, suicide intervention counseling, um, you know, as well as obviously working with the drug addicts themselves. And... That systemically evolved clearly in, in the whole mental side because it was a direct affiliation to working with uh, people with addiction, addiction problems. Then um, at that particular point, I was also just, I just completed my master's degree because I was doing you know my internship after I'd done my master's because I came to the US to study for that. And uh, there was a medical doctor there. His name was Dr. Mark Gold. And uh, I wanted to go and do my PhD in, in psychology and he was like, you know, you might want to investigate this nutritional application and integration with mental health because nobody is really focusing on that. And it's really something that he felt at that point was was a pretty interesting area to go and investigate. So I was very keenly interested in that. Um, and at the same time, my mom got ill. So I got really drawn to this whole natural approach and uh, started to dig into alternatives. And one thing led to the other. And uh, started to formulate some ideas on the overlap between psychology and nutritional health. And that just evolved and evolved. So finally, I ended up in the area of psychology. I, I went down the clinical path, worked with a lot of um, you know metabolic issues, and then uh, worked with athletes. So sports psychology at the end was the was the point of my psychological association still, but you know most of my clinical work 
has been done, you know, on a more clinical level. But I do work with anxiety and depression and gastrointestinal health and metabolic issues. Just as a side note, Oscar, uh, the Rat Park study, you would have obviously been exposed to that study early on. What weight do you give um, the, the, the need for social interaction, happiness uh, um, and, and meaning in people's lives um, as a means to either prevent drug addiction or get off drug addiction once they are drug addicted? I think it plays a massive role. Um, you know, I, I definitely believe that our environment, you know, is a major trigger in the outcomes of our behaviors. But you see, this is where my my whole philosophy and theory comes in. You see, I believe that what I call psychoneutrogenomics, right, which is the psychological view on the integrative part of genomics and nutrition and psychology. For me, it's a three-pronged barstool. And every one of those pieces plays a major role. So I am absolutely in the belief of uh, a, a, a foundational good social environment and motivating parents and uh, structure, you know, to prevent these kinds of things from happening. But you could sometimes have that in a person and then they still end up being a drug addict. So maybe their component was there was a dopaminergic conversion issue and anything with dopamine surges drove them more to, you know, to that addictive behavior. The nutritional component is the third leg on the barstool, right? So that's the one that I feel um, exaggerates the psychosocial as well as the um, genetic or the genomic component. Um, so for me, I don't like just working on the psychology thing in one entity. I like to work with a therapist as well as maybe a psychiatrist if that's needed, a nutritionist, and then maybe a life coach. Um, you know, at the same time, if you want to really get to the bottom of mental health, I think it's it's a it's a multifaceted discipline. You know, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, back to the sort of question frame, if you like. But current stats, what are we looking at here, particularly after COVID? I mean, it must have been you. You must have just had this massive surge. In, it's almost like a PTSD. Definitely. I, I, th I think there's been an incline in anxiety and depression over the last couple of years now. You know, if we're looking at current stats worldwide by the World Health Organization, I think we're looking at about 23% of the population uh, in a state of depression and about 25% people in a state of anxiety. Now, COVID clearly threw a big spanner into the works um, but I don't think it's just there. I think that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, in that isolation state. But I think we had set ourselves up by virtue of our diets and lifestyles and, you know, this consistent exposure to a fast-paced life and dopaminergic oversurging for such a long period of time. That's all we needed, you know, to finally break the camel's back with that piece of straw, um, and, uh, you know, that's where I think we're at, you know, at the, at the present time. But, but the one thing that's really shocking to me and, and scary to me is, generally speaking, it was the older population that used to end up with the worst depression, right? Because you're losing your friends and your loved ones and, and you know, you've not, you're not working anymore. You don't feel like you're, you know, adding anything to, to the population. But if you look at the current data, um, the younger children between the ages of maybe 14 to 28 is really where the depression is surging now. 
And um, the sad part of that is also the increase in the, the suicide ideation and the suicidal tendencies that that come with that. And, and, and that's a big concern for me because I feel that there isn't enough research and literature done on on, you know, the use of these medications on young kids. And that could end up, you know, in some issues. I, I know that there's a place for them, but I just feel that there needs to be more work done in that area. But I do also feel it's because we are getting away from social interaction, you know, and the kids were doing that already on mm -hmm. tablets and cell phones prior, as we all do. But this is the first generation where we're really going into no physical eye contact anymore on a on a consistent level. And then if you throw COVID in where you have no presence of other people other than the social media, I think it's just uh, an avenue of disaster, you know, and that's where we're at. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, like, it, what we learned to accept during lockdown, you know, this global lockdown that we experienced was that we would communicate like you and I are doing um, at a yeah. distance, but not face to face. And it's really interesting how society seems to have embraced or accepted that, let's say, hybrid, that hybrid existence. But what I find really interesting is there is nothing like that person-to-person -person contact Um However you want to explain it, whether you want to explain it in a, a feeling of being a part of something like a species, like an, any animal, um, or whether there's some other factor in there. It's just really interesting how we've come to accept it. It seems to be okay, but it's not the same as person-to-person -person communication. It isn't. Uh, um, uh, and, and you're 100% correct. Uh, we are pack animals, right? I mean, we want to be part of a social pack. We want to be respected and admired and and and, and loved, you know, uh, by other humans, right? It's great to have a dog or a cat and they're unconditional, but we want to be accepted by our own species with, without a doubt. But I just also feel that, you know, we've just gone down a path where, you know, like you say, uh, the social interaction has become the norm, right? You know, with Zoom and 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 the way we communicate. Now it makes sense for us, you know, in different continents to be able to do that. But yeah. if you buy into any of the anecdotal data that's out there at the current time, it's like let's say you and I are in a room. Let's say I come out to Australia in February and I do these talks, and we're in a room together. We're actually affecting each other's microbiomes. Like we are actually helping to generate and express each other's microbiomes differently. And if you buy into the microbiome connection to mental health, then, well, there you go, right? I mean, we're missing out on, on that part already. And that's just one little small section of what we're really talking about. You also mentioned earlier psychoneurogenomics. We need to dive into this. Big word. Can you break sure. it apart for us? Yeah, so the word is psychonutrigenomics, um, so psycho nutri. for psychology, um, nutri for the nu nutritional component, and then genomics for the whole genome, right? Everything that plays a role. It's not just the genetic individual SNP or gene. It's the whole interaction um, of it all. So the psycho for me in that word would be therapy, support, social endeavors, respect, careers, you know, all the things that drive us to make us feel happy and relationships. The nutri or the nu nutritional component is the most overlooked one. 
right? Uh, we are not going to a psychiatrist and they're telling us, listen, you know, before we dig into an SSRI, how about we just check your vitamin D, your blood sugar and your, your iron status, just to make sure that that's not an underlying cause of your anxiety or depression. That's not done. So that part is the least investigated. And then the genome, there's a lot going on, right? I mean, there are people that are looking at several genes and SNPs that have a direct correlation to addiction and, and uh, things to that effect. But if you combine all those three things through functional testing, really working with a psychiatrist or a psychologist at the same time, so that patient gives into that, that um, interaction between the, the professionals, that's when you really have the success. That's the most success I've had with clients and patients is when I've worked with them with the other doctors that are also experts in the area because anxiety and depression is not a one-size-fits-all and, oh, this is the cause of uh, Mary or Joe being anxious, right? I mean, it's it's multifactorial. Do you tend to adjust dietary interventions then um, depending on snips that you see and and i'm not just talking about the common ones that we think about like dao or comp or things like that i'm not just thinking about that but do you look further and and look at like you know the thrill seeker gene or the the warrior gene and things like that and does that does yeah, that you want to look at yeah i'm sorry for jumping in there you definitely want to look at that warrior being the fighter or the warrior being the stressed one right the warrior versus the warrior that's a really interesting one to always look at but there's a couple of other genes that you need to look at as well you know you definitely look at you want to look at some of the genetics involved with dopamine conversion right and serotonin conversions thp1 and ddc and you know like you say that comp with the catecholamine ties into that whole conversion from dopamine but you know, whenever you're working with addictive personalities or anxiety and depression and people that go in overdrive, you know, that's generally one of the major ones you want to look at. And the unfortunate reality of that is that there are so many foods that artificially drive dopamine surges, right? So you get this this, this temporary sensation of, of euphoria and feeling good, and then you go into this massive crash afterwards. So the way that I think – so let's say a person comes to a clinician with – trauma, sexual trauma, life, bad stuff has happened to that person. The nutritional evaluation is not the most important component, right? In that, that, that you need to go into a deep therapy and the nutritional component can help, but that's not phase one. What I'm talking about is the group of people that we all know about this. They, they have a job, they have a relationship. They're not totally unhappy, but they're not happy. And they don't understand why they're not happy. And they don't understand why they're a little depressed and why they're always anxious they, they just can't put their finger on it. That's the person where you want to go in with a nutritional component of that three-pronged bar stool first. That's the nutri, right? That's the one that you want to go check out. What are the underlying things that could play a role there? And there are several, right? I mean, you can look at anemia can mimic anxiety and depression. Hypoglycemia can do that. Vitamin D deficiency can do that. Vitamin B3 deficiency. Vitamin B6 deficiency. B12 deficiency. I can go on and on and on. And you need to cover those bases before you go to phase two because you could actually hit the nail on the head. And the interesting thing about this sometimes is it's not that magic ingredient. It's the combination of all of them that then makes that shift. So it might be a little B6, a little D, a little of amino acid conversion, and you give them some nutraceutical to help convert that SNP, you know, or express that gene slightly differently that, that, that you were mentioning, and then you have the results. 
you know, it's this whole SSRI or MAO, or um, I'm going to give you just a calming nutraceutical is, is not really where you want to go here because everybody has to have this kind of table filled out and figured out, Hey, you know, these are the things that accumulate to optimal mental health. Let's make sure that they're all in place. That, that was actually a really good answer. I was thinking earlier, you know, do we just barge our way in with something like 5-HTP for the precursor for serotonin or do we really need to set the table, as you said? And I think you've just answered that. So thank you for that. Can I ask, with regards to anemia, I'm, I'm seeing a huge issue of uh, poorly managed anemias where people are just bolting in way too much iron, not giving any credence to any other nutritional factors. And, you know, TIBC, ferritin, saturation, they're just they constantly remain low. Can you take us through how you would address that issue of anemia, please? This is, this is a lecture in itself, I know, sorry, but yeah. can you take us through For a few sure. hints and tips? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I think, you know, to determine anemia, you got to look at some of the markers that you mentioned there. But a, a very overlooked thing is a condition called anemia of chronic disease, right? So anemia of chronic disease is where people might sometimes show that they have lower iron because the iron is sequestered into storing, and they might have all the symptoms of an anemic person, but the 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 ferritin and the liver enzymes might be a little bit higher because the iron is sequestered right into storing capacity. So you got to be very careful when you start doing that, and and and. What I've learned is that there is never one nutraceutical that is going to cover all the bases. Because remember, you have iron deficiency anemia, you have sideroblastic anemia, you have megaloblastic anemia, right? So you have variations of anemia that most people don't focus on. Um, but for me, what I want to definitely rule out is a bacterial infection or something going on that is sequestering that iron away, and that's why that person isn't absorbing it. Or alternatively, um, you know, what does that person's intestines look like? You know, how's the villi? Because the look, the villi in the duodenum is very much looking for iron, right? We don't make it. We have to get it from outside sources. So these babies are looking for that little nutrient to come into our bloodstream. Um, but, you know, what's, what's the reason for the compromised duodenum, right? So there's another kind of a theory that I created to my students, and I call it um, um, uh absorption syndrome right so duodenal compromised duodenal absorption system uh, sorry let me rephrase that compromised duodenal absorption syndrome right so that is a multi now there's no such thing in the medical dictionary at this point this is all about the functionality of it um but things that yeah. cause you not to absorb the, the the most important nutrients like iron so what would that be stress glyphosate protein pump inhibitors anything that messes with that pH differentiation coming from the stomach all the way down into the, the intestinal lining, you know, all those things affect us, certain medications. So when we are sometimes anemic and we don't get a response from the iron that we're taking, and let's say it's not an anemia of chronic disease, then maybe you want to go down the road and say, okay, well, let's go fix the duodenum because if you're deficient in iron, you're probably going to deficient, be deficient in some of the other massive amounts of vitamins that get absorbed in that small area of the duodenum um, you know, for, for the individual. Can I ask, I, I know we're sort of going down the nutrition, the nutrition um, avenue, but just pulling back a bit, 
when we're talking about people who suffer from anxiety, let's say, and they're they're just chained, they're shackled, they can't, um, they're very fearful of of going outside of their small little enclave to even try things new. How do you get these patients to be brave, um, to try things new? Because it seems like they go round and round in their head and it seems like this ever-decreasing circle of safety that they go into, which causes more anxiety because they don't do anything. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to answer that is like comparing that to a person that doesn't have a diversified microbiome. This has nothing to do with that directly, right? I mean, if you only eat one or two foods, you're only going to have so many substrates and so many species of bacteria that can benefit from that, right? You need the diversity. But to take a step back into what you just mentioned, to me, if you look at that patient that is in that little bubble, right? And they can't seem to to break out of that bubble. I feel that a lot of patients have been given the runaround in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, they may to believe that there's something wrong with them because they have anxiety or depression. So they become fearful of expressing that to the outside world because it's a sign of weakness, you know, and even though it's now obviously spilt over, you know, we don't really look at it that way, but a lot of people still do, right? I mean, our oh, shame, you know, Joe can't handle stress, so, you know, he's, you know, don't put too much stress on him. Um, And and I think it's because the clinical world treats depression and anxiety as a disease instead of treating it as a um, insufficiency, you know. So, and again, this is the category of anxiety and depression that that has more of the the barstool effect in the nutri and the genomic part right? Not the yeah. psycho yeah. part if there, if there wasn't trauma. But I will tell you that most of the patients that come into my office actually sit down and feel relief because I actually believe them, right? We're actually listening to them. We're actually paying attention to what they have to say. And then we tell them, listen, you know, there isn't something wrong with you. Yeah, but I've been tested for all sorts of things. And I am scoring so many points on my general, generalized anxiety score test or my Bex inventory or, or whatever. And they said to them, well, I, I get that, but that is the end result, right? What is driving that result? What is driving that score, right? I mean, what if I tell you that if I can show you that you have a vitamin D deficiency, that might improve the score if we improve that, or you have a, if you, you're hypoglycemic, so you, you tend to feel like you're having a panic attack uh, when you might not. And then if we fix the blood glucose problem, then that might improve that's when they really start listening. But you see, that's that's the point where functional testing comes in, right? So we need to quantify what we're saying to these people because they've already been given the runaround where they have doubt in themselves, but also the clinicians because it's, hey, let's try this drug. Let's try this approach. Let's try. So it's all experimental. So these people are kind of tired of the experiment that they've been put mm-hmm. under to kind of determine what we need to do to make them feel better short term. And it's never long term. Because neurotransmitters is not like changing a tire on a car, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that are involved with the firing of those synapses and the communication in the brain. And um, and it's all interrelated, right? I mean, uh, you know, thyroid health, uh, anemia status, blood sugar status, malabsorptive status. These are all things that could cause anxiety and depression and nobody is talking about it. Yeah. Um, so thyroid's an interesting one. 
and again, there's another lecture, but is it something that you do uh, as a standard investigation? And do you look at antibodies, or do you look at just look at th? Um, um, sorry, T four and T three, free T three. Um, do you always look for the antibodies, and does that give you a clue to maybe a malabsorption syndrome? Yeah, that's a very good point. Look, um, I'm sure that Australia has certain provinces that are very similar to to America, where with certain licensure, you can't do all the tests. Now, thank goodness my relationship with physicians have improved dramatically and I teach at medical schools, so that never hurts. So I, I don't really have a problem getting blood work called if I tell a physician, hey, I'd like to do this. So yes, I want to get at least a ferritin score. I want to get at minimum a TSH, hopefully a T4 and a T3, right? That will be very helpful. Antibodies, yes, it's helpful, but it doesn't necessarily always interplay to the direct anxiety and depression thing, That's more the autoimmunity thing that we need to talk about, right? Um, what else do I do? Blood sugar. Um, I love to have hemoglobin A1C, right? I like to look at liver enzymes. I like to look at pretty much an overall uh, investigation of, of the white blood cells because I need to see if there's an inflammatory reaction or some something going on, you know, CRP. It's homocysteine, they, they all have a correlation to anxiety and depression. So the more blood work you can get as a clinician, as it pertains to that patient, the better, right? So if you can have some indication of vitamin D issues or <clears throat> iron deficiency anemia or B12, methylmalonic acid that we can pick up in certain tests, then, you know, you can start getting a picture. Wow. Okay. So this person seems to be deficient in most of those little nutrients that we get. And the, and the interesting thing about that is not always a deficiency that is required for anxiety. It might be as little as an insufficiency. And, and, and that's where it becomes important to investigate how deep can you go in the early investigation? Because the quicker you hit this problem um, and return it to normalcy, the quicker that person is going to have those results. Okay, so even something like vitamin A, which is often said that we don't experience that in the Western world, forgive me, a vitamin A deficiency, um, and yet we know that vitamin A is crucial for neurotransmitter production. Do you ever look at vitamin A? Could it be, as you said, like a malabsorption-type syndrome, um, let's say created by gluten? Let's just pick that one because it's always the big baddie. But, um, but do you look at... Uh, forgive me, do you actually assay vitamin A as a, as a means to try and find out, to find out if there might be an issue with that production? Unfortunately not, but I know exactly where you're coming from, right? Because that's one that I would mm. really like to do. Now, if I was to do, let's say, a micronutrient assessment, looking at it from a leukocyte level in a test in the US, that's going to require a phlebotomist. And a lot of people don't want to go down that road, right? Because then you can look at all the, the different vitamins and minerals that play a role. But, um, you know, if you have a very low vitamin D status, right, and you kind of look at that person from a symptomology standpoint, because that's always something I go and because I, I, I kind of want to look at the symptoms of vitamin A deficiency and read that to my patient and say, okay, how many of these do you portray? And I got seven out of the 10 that you just read. Now, I don't recall them all off the top of my head, but you know, you know what I'm saying? I'll have a list. Mm. I can mm. say, okay, B vitamin deficiencies. Here are the symptoms of B vitamin deficiencies as they relate, relate to, to the psychological thing. And that's what I will be doing in the presentation in, in Australia is I'll show you 
the psychological, neurological association to vitamin and mineral deficiencies, the key ones. So this is where we need to go in this world is we need to design a test that can do all that assessment that we're talking about to determine the status of all these nutrients so we can cover that base, which will include vitamin A. It'll include vitamin K, E, D, C. I mean, they all play a role somewhere along the line, you know, in, in, in this process. So if you can actually have a proper analysis of all that and make that the nutritional psychology assessment, then that's great. And on that point, one of my former students, she created a new division in the U.S. She's a, she was a psychologist when she came into my program, and she did a master's in nutrition. And she's now created the American Nutritional Psychology Division, of which in 2030, they're going to launch the first full-on degree in nutritional psychology. So there's progress, right? Uh, and I know this is a little off topic, but just to tell you kind of where all these brains are heading for the future. But yeah, not vitamin E in my testing, yeah. unfortunately, at this point. Absolutely see the value of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's go into five hero nutrients that you use then. Um, uh, if we can just get a semblance of what you might commonly use. I, I, I understand this is a piece of string because every patient's going to be different. But what sort of things do you use commonly that you find has have merit? Vitamin B6, really important one, okay, that a lot of people are looking at, right, because they assume that we're also exposed to the amount of B6. Somehow people assume that we just have high levels of it. And that is actually one of the most common low markers that I see when I look at metabolomics organic acid tests, right, by looking at xanthorenic acid and pyridoxic acid. Because vitamin B6 is how we convert tryptophan to serotonin and then to melatonin. And B6 is what we require tyrosine to convert to dopamine and eventually ends up in the catecholamines, right? Epinephrine and norepinephrine. Um, so that's a really important one. Vitamin D, the obvious one, right? I mean, everybody knows about seasonal affective disorder, and that's not really something that I'm sure Australians see that much. But here in the northern part of America, there's a lot of that going on, right? Five months, six months of the year, these people aren't exposed to sunshine. We see detrimentally low levels of vitamin D. Now, I personally don't think it's only sunshine related. I think your immune system is using up so many of these vitamin D precursors to make the regulatory cells that that's one of the reasons that the vitamin D is low. Forget about, you know, the, the lack of sunshine. Um, so vitamin D, B6, um, a couple of the amino acids, right? I mean, you want to look at some of the bacterial strains like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. They play a big role in aromatic amino acid production or the utilization of that in the form of tryptophan and tyrosine. So that would be another one. B3, vitamin B3 is a big player as well when it comes to that. Um, so well, how many is that now that I've just mentioned off the top of my head there. Um, <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> we had iron, B6, B3. So all the Bs, quite frankly, are really important. And that's mm. the number one thing that gets depleted with alcohol use, which is why there's such a strong association between depression and alcoholism. What a salient point. Can I ask, the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia, TGA, is very down on B6 at the moment and, and restricting dosages right down. Um with the, the warnings accompanying them of um, sensory damage, 
uh, peripheral neuropathy, things like that. Um, I've never, ever seen these. And, and although I've never, ever used B6 on its own in massive doses without complementing uh, with a B complex, I simply have not seen these. Have you ever seen these peripheral neuropathies of high-dose B6? I haven't. Um, uh, I know of one or two cases in some of my colleagues that has come up, but that's generally mm. a person that isn't testing where they are on that and then just starting to take B6 because they're trying to address an issue and thinking that that's a smart move. It's always good to do it in a complex, right? Because you want them to be yeah. interacting with each other. And when I'm talking about B6 intervention, um, I'm not talking long-term, right? I'm talking about something that will just kind of get that, that you're turning and see if that has a a positive influence. So I would say that that is a little bit of a aggressive overreaction. I'm not saying that there isn't validation behind the dangers of excess vitamin B6. That's a fact. I mean, that is a dangerous yeah. issue. Um, but like you, I don't see that a lot clinically. As a matter of fact, I am actually kind of shocked why we have so much of the deficiency or insufficiency, um, you know, compared to the, the excess. Uh, now, if a person has renal issues or there are liver issues, then I would be more cautious, you know, uh, with with any of these things. But if a person has a healthy detoxification system, their liver isn't overloaded, um, yeah, I don't think a short-term use of that is is really a problem. But it's individual, right? Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting narrative that that goes with these things. A classic one for me is uh, vitamin D deficiency, and there was a recent narrative in in Queensland. So this is the sunshine state of Australia, right? Um, and the narrative that was uh, put out was that the way that, forgive me, the way that the narrative sounded was you don't have to worry so much about vitamin D. We're really doing well because we've only got 12% deficiency in Queensland. And I went, well, hang on, your message about iron is that we need to be really concerned about iron intake and that's 12%. But you don't have to worry about vitamin D because that's 12%. It's a real interesting, it's only 12% or it's as high as 12%. Real <laughs> interesting narrative that's going on. That's a, I just how think... The, how the pendulum swings. I just think that with these things, we need to get to a point as a profession where we can delineate between insufficiencies and deficiencies because we do not want to be working in this competitive combative zone of disease we need to get out of that right when it comes to mental health because then they're going to tell you b6 is dangerous don't use that and don't use too much vitamin d yeah. and you know we only have a 12 to 12 percent deficiency but what is the insufficiency status you know, so let's say there's 12% deficiency, there might be a 43% insufficiency, and that insufficiency is enough for that person not to want to get up and go to work, or not being motivated enough, or their immune system might be slightly um, suppressed because they don't have enough of those substrates to help them build it, right? So again, I'm not talking here in any way, shape, or form, hey, listen, you know, you have an overt vitamin D deficiency, it's so obvious that you know you need to almost go to a hospital i'm talking about matching the symptomology of your patient to their reference range and start forgetting about the fact that we are working on this optimal thing now here in the u.s 
the reference ranges between 30 and 100 is deemed semi-normal for vitamin D, right? So 32 apparently is the same as 58, apparently is the same as 63, which is just totally absurd, right? That's the same thing as telling me, hey, my car has a quarter tank of gas in. That's almost the same as having a three-quarter tank of gas because it's still driving. Yeah, right. But I can't really go very far and very fast on a quarter tank, right, um, if I maintain a certain speed. And that's what we're doing. We're all running at 75 miles an hour in a 55 zone with a quarter tank of gas. And then we're surprised when when the performance is lacking when it comes down the stretch. So, you know, I've kind of tried to get out of that competitive and combative element because I've lived with it for 25 years in my clinical practice. I, you know, guys are quacks and this is that. I'm like, yeah. I'll keep taking your injured and the people that you can't figure out. And, you know, you can keep calling me what you want to call me. But at the end of the day, I've kind of shifted my mind now into more of a insufficiency thing and really working with a topic of optimal health, right? And we're talking mental health here. So how do you optimize mental health? You have to get those three pronged bar stools to be solid, the same length on a flat floor. You can't have it talk the other way. And if you have an insufficiency, there's about an inch taken off of that one leg on that bar stool. And now you're kind of rocking a little bit, right? So it's it's all about measuring and maintaining all three of those things at the same level, and then you have success. One of the things we haven't mentioned uh, about the the nutrients, if you like, that you use is uh, you've mentioned them a couple of times: probiotics, lactobacillus, and and bifidobacteria, and there are others. How important do you think a the gut is, and b the use or the implementation of probiotics are in helping people with really quite substantial mental health disorders? You know, um, I'm going to try and make this as scientific as I can because it's still, you know, reasonably anecdotal on many levels, right? We, we don't know anything about the gut and what I will share in presentations moving forward will be based on some very, very credible science and data and, and some human studies. Right. Uh, I personally think the enteric nervous system is more powerful than the human brain. Right. I mean, that's just my opinion. I think this, this uh, microbiome that we are talking about, that is this little thing of three pounds in our body that somehow is affecting this. I, I think we should look at the microbiome as an accessory organ system. It's not just this little attachment that is like kind of sucking onto us like a whale and we're floating around the ocean. We have these little fish sucking onto us, right? It's, it's not that. It's, it's really complicated. And, and I think the data is really starting to show the massive connection between all these different strains. Now, what all the companies want to do now is they want to evolve a strain, right, that that they can patent, and then that is the new anti-anxiety and antidepressive state. Now, there's very good data on some of these bifidobacterium strains and, and anxiety and depression. But what I've seen is if that person's absorption is very good or at a very high susceptible level, then these things tend to work extremely well. The microbiome has expression on our genes, right? It is really the outside of our body. So you can't find a bigger epigenetic center of information being yeah. triggered to the rest of our system. Um, and then one thing in the microbiome that I think is really strong in the literature right now, which I've really dug into is LPS, right? So lipopolysaccharides, right. The uh, 
the gram-negative bacteria, when they go through their natural cell cycle and they die off, they produce a huge amount of LPS. And when there's permeability in the gut and that LPS can escape into the bloodstream and then cross into the blood-brain barrier, and they cause a massive inflammatory uh, reaction, that's where I think a lot of this stuff comes from. So it's brain inflammation. So that's the other side that you need to, to work on. I don't think you can work on proper mental health without having the GI tract intact, just by virtue of the LPS alone. Forget about all the individual strains that go with that. Um, I think you, you really need to have a healthy microbiome to overcome. And if you know, it would make total sense because if we look at the younger population, the diet is more exposed to herbicides and pesticides that we don't do. It's a lot less whole foods. There's a lot less biodiversity in them because they're only eating a certain amount of food. So they don't get the same amount of, of, of food to their microbiome. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think there's there's a massive, massive connection there. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next 10 years to see where all that's going. We can't wait to have you out to Australia and New Zealand in, um, in 2024. It's, it's February, right? February and March. I think you're coming yeah, out. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I'm certainly going to be there. <laughs> I'm going to be writing down my questions from now. I need to ask you, Oscar, about gluten. I've interviewed David Perlmutter, who is just against gluten. Um, I've interviewed Alessio Fasano in a brief interview, and he says, look, it's bigger than celiac. It's less than all. It's somewhere in between. There are certain people more than celiac who, who respond to wheat. But I have to ask, how much do we have to look into either what type of bread, um, high gluten, low gluten, um, other things that are in there, like you get these people taking non-gluten alternatives that are high in additives, you know, the e, e numbers and things like that. And then how much do we have to focus on the terrain in these non-celiac people? Um, how much do we have to focus on the terrain to possibly be able to heal the gut enough so that it doesn't react to gluten? So Alessio Fasano's work, was indicating the CXCR3 receptor that has an effect on occludin and zonulin and makes total sense to me from a scientific standpoint. So I do believe that when we eat some of those foods that there is a tight junction um, expression, but that's not the only thing that affects our tight junctions. Alcohol is the, the biggest cause of permeability in, in the country. Forget about gluten. So if you combine gluten and alcohol, you have a bigger issue. The other part of the problem is that people are always talking about tight junctions. Yeah, but you have buffering agents, right? So if you have biodiversity and a good mix of good bacteria and opportunists and they're working cohesively and symbiotically, you know, you have buffering, right? And if you have enough acromantia species and you have enough butyrate and, you know, have all of that stuff, then I think the body can handle a lot of stuff, right? Um not sprayed with excessive amount of pesticides and herbicides. So there is a mode of that, right, that we need to take into consideration. And then finally, you know, when we're looking at this whole gluten thing, like you've got to look at the prolamines, right? Some of these protein contents in, in, in corn and, and, and uh, um, you know, some, even people with oats and rice. Like sometimes when I pe get people that are extremely sensitive to, to gluten on a test, I'll just remove all grains short term and then work with all the other parameters. And then if you can reintroduce like sprouted grains or something like that, um, you know, you know, you've won the battle. Do I believe that everybody has to be of grains their whole life? 
No. Can I see the scientific argument by some people? Yes. But there's confounders that they're not mentioning. Okay, so if we are talking about that and these people are having these reactions, then let's assess their entire microbiome and see what's out there. Maybe we find that they're very low in Acromancia or Faecalibacterium prausnitiae or Roseberia species. And those are the people that are highly reactive to gluten. But we don't, we don't know that yet. Um, so I... Look, I buy into all the science of everybody's opinion. You know, there's value in some data on every diet out there that has value. You can look at the carnivore diet, they're having strong arguments, the paleo diet, the vegan diet, the raw diet. You know, everybody has their own claim to fame. I just think as a species, we were not supposed to be eating non-diverse. And, you know, maybe it is a good thing to challenge your body a little bit with something with a little bit more fiber. And maybe it's not always the worst thing in the world to have a little bit of inflammation to test your immune system, you know, with something coming in. I mean, I'm a very outside the box thinker. Um, But I can tell you this, that the thing that I always tell my patients when they come into me with a GI issue, which is always going to end up with an anxiety or depression association at some point, um, I say to them, listen, you can only eat six foods right now. I would have won this game if I can have you go out one day and eat what you want and have no reaction. That doesn't mean that you have to eat that every day, but this whole hypochlorhydric, low stomach acid thing and PPI use. I mean, I feel that there's a strong connection between that and anxiety and depression, right? Because I can show you the, the steps that are affecting, you know, the outcome of those nutrients that we're missing in the nutri part of my psychoneutrogenomics thing uh, that play a role because of the medication. This is going to be so exciting to have you out, Oscar. Um, forgive me, I'm going to be a little bit of fan waving at the back. Uh, um, so I just I can't thank you enough for taking us through just a snippet. There were so many other things I wanted to cover, and we just haven't got time. But I I really cannot wait to to welcome you out to Australia. I think it's your third time out to Australia. Is that right? That's right, and all associated with Designs for Health. So thanks to them for getting my, yeah. my fiance and myself out there to that lovely country. And we are, we can't wait. We're already pumped to come out. And it's a topic that is extremely passionate, passionate to me. I, I, I have a very, very strong connection because of my graduate degrees in psychology and my doctorate degrees in nutrition. So, you know, I've really looked at this thing from many, many avenues. And the beauty about it is it's so young and we're only learning more and more about it. But I will share clinical pearls that I've used with my patients um, that were very successful, you know, with them stepping up. Because, look, being 70% less anxious is better than being 30% less anxious, right? So there's modes of improvement. You don't always have to completely get rid of anxiety for there to be improvement. And that's the whole optimal health thing. Where are you on that continuum we got to get our patients to say, hey, look, we're not going to give you something that's going to make you feel better tomorrow. But five months from now, that continuum, you're going to move more towards that optimal health thing. And that's where your mental health starts to improve. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we will certainly look to welcome you to Australia and New Zealand in early 2024. Professor Oscar Coetze, thank you so much for joining us today on Wellness by Designs. Thank you for, for having me, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, actually. Take care. And thank you, everyone. Remember, all of the show notes and the dates of the seminars that Oscar will be presenting in early 2024 will be up on the website and in the show notes of today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.
This is Wellness by Designs.